Thanks for joining us today on We Are Rivers, a podcast where we tell stories and talk issues about the rivers that connect us. I'm Paige Buono, your host. Have you ever flown to or through the Atlanta airport? Given that in 2020 alone, the Hartsfield-Jackson Airport handled nearly 43 million passengers, the odds are probably pretty good that you have. And what you probably didn't know, and certainly I didn't know as I taxied across the runway, likely more anxious about missing a connection than I was about what was going on, is that as you're taxiing, you're rolling over the headwaters of a 344-mile-long river. Our guest today, Hannah Palmer, grew up just miles from the Flint River, and she too didn't know about its existence until a writing project about the expansion of the airport and the loss of communities and the friendship she made along the way led her to the Flint. Now, Hannah leads an effort called Finding the Flint. Stay with us to learn what all that entails and how this urban river recovery tale has reverberating lessons for others. Two quick notes. One, please forgive the way it may seem like I'm mimicking Hannah's accent. I spent summers in Arkansas with my grandparents for much of my childhood and nothing brings the accent out like an engaging conversation with a Southerner. Two, I mentioned Ben in our interview and for some context, Ben Emanuel is the director of clean water supply for American Rivers, the person who connected me to Hannah and an ongoing supporter of Finding the Flint. Awesome. Well, um, thanks so much again, Hannah, for taking the time. I'm really excited to learn more about finding the Flint with you. And um, maybe to start, can you just introduce yourself and and tell us a little bit about who you are um, in relationship to the Flint River? Sure. My name is Hannah Palmer. I'm a writer and an urban designer in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I grew up in Clayton County, Georgia, not far from the world's busiest airport which most people around the world know, Hartsfield-Jackson Airport is in my backyard. And I did not know that my watershed was the Flint River because I had never uh, seen the river or swam in it or fished in it. You just don't have access to this river, um, mostly because the airport is sort of built on top of the headwaters and the airport is now surrounded by a lot of industrial land uses and parking lots, um, which has really sort of erased the Flint River from the landscape. So when I started writing a book about the development of the airport um, about 10 years ago, I learned about the Flint River a little bit and was sort of fascinated that these headwaters were hidden all around me. So it came about because I live in this area and I am a writer and a researcher and I started kind of asking questions about what happened to the Flint River that led to this really fun and exciting project with American Rivers and the Atlanta Regional Commission and the Conservation Fund to sort of try to reveal and restore those lost headwaters. Awesome. And I want to get more into the Flint River and, and sort of what that process has uh, included. But I, I was struck, Ben shared that um, part of your book is your own sort of story of displacement by the airport, that it sounds like those neighborhoods um, the neighborhoods where, you know, you grew up and things like that no longer exist because of the airport. And so I would love to just hear a little bit more about that relationship. Yeah, sure. I, I started writing a book that was a, sort of a memoir about lost houses. And at that time, I wasn't thinking about the history of the airport or the history of the Flint River. I was just trying to understand why every house I'd ever lived in was gone. 
as an adult, I realized that's slightly unusual. Most people can't go home again, but I really had a track record of bulldozed houses. And um, as I was researching and writing about that, I thought I was writing a family history. It turns out this was a much larger story about the development of, of a massive airport and how it sort of swallowed a number of small towns and surrounding um, the runways. And my book is called Flight Path, um, sort of about the airplanes, flight paths, but also the people who fled the area, the, the, my community, which kind of got pushed out of the area. And in that process, I sort of became an expert on like, you know, urban design. I, I really didn't study urban design. I was just a curious writer and thought this is an interesting story nobody's talking about in Atlanta or beyond. Tell us a little bit more just about the Flint and, um, you know, the audience for this podcast, I think is mostly based in the West. Um, though certainly we're hoping for more listeners on the East coast and in the Midwest. Um, but I think the way rivers flow in the East is really different to us. And so maybe just kind of tell us about the Flint, describe it. Well, sure. If, if you've ever visited, um, Hartsville Jackson, Atlanta international airport, whether you came to Atlanta or just got a connecting flight somewhere else, you, you have actually, um, flown over and, and, and taxied over the Flint River. Um, it begins as an urban watershed in the small railroad town surrounding the Atlanta airport. And it's piped for many miles underneath the runways of the airport. Um, and as it emerges uh, south of the airport, it starts to be joined by all these small urban tributaries and gradually growing into a, a very important river for the southern region. It flows from Atlanta, 340 something miles to the Florida border. So all the way across the state of Georgia, it's the second longest river in Georgia. And there it joins the Chattahoochee River, which is the longest river in Georgia. It forms the Apalachicola that then flows into the Gulf of Mexico. So the Chattahoochee River and the Flint River um, really are the lifeblood of you know, drinking water for city of Atlanta, which is a massive metropolitan region. And then the agricultural uses all through throughout Georgia. I mean, that's the lifeblood of those farms. And then into the Apalachicola, which is, um, you know, not only a tourist destination, but those are the oyster fisheries of, um, you know, the Gulf that's so famous. So the, there's a lot of biodiversity throughout the Chattahoochee and Flint River. There's um, several threatened and endangered species of mussels and um, some amazing bass fishing. Um, honestly, I'm, I'm a city girl and I've been really focused on the urban streams, but yesterday I had the chance to float on the Flint River with the Flint River Keeper. Um, Flint River Keeper is a, a kind of a younger 10 year old organization that really was formed in response to threats to the Flint River during some terrible years of drought in um, like 2007, 2008. Uh, side note. We're going to do a follow-up episode on the work of the Flint River Keeper and the Upper Flint River Working Group. So stay tuned for that. Back to Hannah. Um, now we're in a wet period where the, we're dealing with flooding, a lot of urban flooding, particularly along the Flint. So that's, I mean, it's a story. The Flint River is in some ways a lot like um, urban, any urban river, kind of hidden and unknown. There's very little public access to the river. It seems like there's just a few fishermen who really... Um, appreciate the river for the specific shoal bass um, species. And they come from all over the country to fish for shoal bass in the Flint River. But beyond that, the public is not 
um, as aware of, of the river and enjoying it. They're just, that's something we're trying to change with finding the Flint is giving people access to the river again. Yeah, I was wondering, it sounds like finding the Flint sort of started out as a more personal journey um, and has expanded into something much more community driven and oriented. And maybe you can just tell us about finding the Flint, what it is and what it's trying to do. So I have my personal reasons for being interested in the Flint River. It's my own, you know, it's in my own backyard and I'm raising a family in this area and I want them to um, have a sense, my kids have a sense of place and a sense of ownership over um, this place that they're, you know, they're inheriting. Um, as a sort of suburban kid, I always felt like I was from nowhere and I, I've really enjoyed learning the history and, and the ecology that's around me and, and you know, feeling that I, I am from somewhere that is unique in the world and worth, worth fighting for. Um, but finding the Flint came to me. I was, I was uh, approached by the American Rivers and Conservation Fund Coalition. They, they were looking for um, a resident on the South Side uh, who could do community organizing, visioning, storytelling, research, um, and really wrangling cats, you know, uh, coordinating all these various stakeholders around the airport area to try to advance a, a better vision for the headwaters. At that time, I didn't know anything about the Flint River. I thought it was down in Albany and it is. Albany's in South Georgia. That's where the river is big enough to cause um, some devastating flooding in the nineties. I, I had no idea that it started, you know, really close by. I, I just knew it's piped somewhere under the airport. Um, so they, they, I got started on the project, um, sort of looking at maps and thinking about redevelopment opportunities that are happening around the airport where we could develop differently, where we could um, maybe daylight the Flint or um, build parks or trails or green spaces that highlight the river and give people some access again, where there are opportunities to add green infrastructure to existing developments. So through that process, I got to know this urban river that has been hidden for so long. And um, I called it finding the Flint because we were literally out doing the scavenger hunt, looking down storm drains, um, looking through barbed wire fences, sneaking around airport property and trying not to get in trouble. And it definitely felt like a scavenger hunt. And we were, we were saying to each other that, okay, we're gonna go out finding the Flint again. That of course, just had a ring to it. And now it's sort of the name of the project. Um, Finding the Flint is not like a, a nonprofit and it's, it's certainly much bigger than me, but it, it's sort of an active verb for, for what we're doing with this project. We're helping people find, find it again. You've talked a couple of times about um, the importance, you know, your sort of lack of access and familiarity to the, with the river. And then, um, you know, sort of a lack of public access throughout the watershed. Um, and then sort of the goal of reestablishing or creating places where people can connect. Why is it important for people to connect with the Flint? Okay, it's important for people to understand that the development that's happening in one place affects people's lives downstream. It's important because we rely on these rivers for our own survival and <laughs> every level from drinking water to jobs, you know, uh, businesses that locate in, in this area have to have water. So, I mean, we all depend on the river as a resource, but if we can't actually see it, it's even more abstract. And 
it's hard to have make for regular people to care about um, a resource that doesn't benefit them directly. So if you if you fish in a creek, you do care about the quality of the water. If you swim in a creek, you're very sensitive to what's being you know dumped upstream. Um, and if you play in a creek, even just walking your dog along a small stream, you're going to smell when it's, you know, there's some sort of spill. You're going to notice when there's trash. The Flint River is so out of reach. People have no sense in the, in the Atlanta metro area where there's millions of us. Um, if people can't see it, can't touch it, can't enjoy it, can't hear it, then what's happening in the city, um, you know, there's no consequences. There's no accountability. Um, there are, there is a generation of Atlantans who do remember playing in the Flint River, swimming in it, fishing in it, enjoying it over the years as the airport was developed, as the city, you know, really spread, we gradually lost connection to that Creek. And, it, and the story of the Flint became, it really got a bad reputation for being, um, you know, for whatever pollution is coming from the airport, um, for, you know, drastic flooding. You know, as any urbanized creek, it's quite flashy during storms. So it was carrying off cars at times and um, it, it, became, it becomes a threat where it used to be an asset. People started to think of the Flint River as uh, a threat to be contained. We think there are many places where we could start to restore safe access to the river. And we're working to do that so that future generations understand there is a river in their neighborhood and um, it's beautiful and, and that the, the actions they take, either we're talking about a big institution or just an individual household does actually have an impact on folks downstream. Looking, you know, 10, I don't know what the right time frame is. I think there's a tendency to want to be able to like hang our hats on successes for projects like this within a year. And it's just not <laughs> realistic. Um, but maybe, or maybe it is, um, I guess what I'm asking is what's sort of the time frame that you're thinking about as you're kind of pushing for some of these changes and investments and, and on that time frame, what would success look like? When we first started gathering the Finding the Flint Working Group, which is what we've just been calling the, the group of airport area stakeholders who are interested in sort of sustainable development and interested in the river, when we first started convening that group, we set out a list of three-year goals. And they're pretty modest. They were like, um, create a visible constituency of stakeholders and speak for the river. So check, we, we now have this group that does that. Um, sort of just advance collaboration conversations around sustainable development and design and green infrastructure check that's happening. And then, you know, the, the most ambitious goal is to break ground on, pro, on, on projects that are sort of, um, you know, that show this vision in, 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 in the community, in people's backyards where people can see it. And we, I don't know that breaking ground has happened. We're still in design and development on a couple of projects and fundraising. COVID was definitely a major setback for, um, for, for particularly uh, the airport area because so much city revenue comes from hotels and parking, you know, rental car parking lots. And so a lot got paused during 2020. However, we, we did make some progress. Um, uh, the conservation fund 
acquired 12 acres of land in Clayton County that they then transferred to um, public ownership. So there are now 12 acres protected, uh, just in uh, these wetlands uh, along Mud Creek that weren't protected before. So we celebrated that as a win. Um, some of these projects that we have set out, I hope will be in use by the public in two years. That's possible. We are, there's a project right at the first, you know, source, the, the first daylighted segment of the river in College Park. It really in this like kind of dense industrial and, and um, historic area where we're working on developing a nature preserve. And if all the funding falls into place, people could be enjoying that nature preserve in two years. And then there's um, other parts of the vision um, that are very long-term, you know, landscape scale conservation that is, you know, decades in the making. I'm learning to be patient with this project for sure, because when you're talking about an asset that nobody has heard of, you have to, you have to kind of build a movement. You have to build awareness um, and then build urgency. And um, there's just so many partners, like most airports, the Atlanta airport is sitting in two counties and, next to five cities and there's all these different government partners and organizations and then community members. And it has been slow, I have to say. And yet um, when you think about building a movement and like the people who have found the Flint there, they can't unsee what they've seen and they're telling their friends and they're telling their children. And um, we're not gonna go back to a generation of people with no awareness and no understanding of, of the natural assets but actually building parks, it's super complicated in the airport area. Um, check back with me in <laughs> six months and I might answer this question completely differently. COVID has been a curveball, but like one project south of the airport where we would love to see a quarry repurposed as a reservoir. I don't know if that'll happen in my lifetime, <laughs> but you have to put these ideas out there um, because at some point that quarry will be obsolete and it can, it can be, um, it can control flooding on the Flint. I love, and I feel, um, I feel corrected, like in the best way. Cause I think it's such a good reminder that just that sort of trust building and that initial stage of getting people familiar and engaged and interested is a huge success. And I think, um, it's easy not to quite you know, when we don't see the work on the ground or we don't see the change, it can feel like it. And I, um, anyway, I feel inspired and I think it's a really good reminder for people that like that in so many ways is the hardest part <laughs> that like the things to come will take longer, but if you don't cross that threshold, it's sort of all for naught. And so that's encouraging to hear. Um, I've spent a lot of time building relationships in the community um, and you can't rush that. Trust is not <laughs> on a timeline. Certainly, I feel like we've made a lot of progress. People know about finding the Flint and it helps that I just live in this community and these conversations are happening organically everywhere I go. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I, <laughs> you're like, actually, if I didn't have to talk to the Flint about the Flint right. when I was going shopping for once, it might be a relief. <laughs> it's a, it's a pleasure. I, I, one, another fun part about calling it finding the Flint is that we, um, you know, my specialty is like helping 
people discover this this thing and it's always a pleasure to see people's faces when they see oh what that ditch is part of a system that goes to florida or um the water there is actually a river let's claim it let's call it a river um that never gets old well i think you know hearing you talk about it and one of the questions i had was definitely you know this is a ar has a national audience and urban rivers are a challenge and an opportunity sort of throughout the country. And I'm curious, you know, what are the lessons that you've learned in this sort of um, rediscovery effort that maybe translate? Sure. And, you know, at the beginning of this project, I spent a lot of time studying other urban restoration, you know, examples. So I've been a student of those projects and it it's, it's the first time someone's asked me what lessons I could share with others who are not quite as far down the road as we are. I think it's what we just touched on about building trust. Um, I think when we first started going to neighborhood engagement meetings, we had these renderings and this big vision for um, restoration. And I was surprised how threatened people felt because this, this vision uh, represented gentrification and, and displacement and like rising property values that in, that were going to make some of these neighborhoods out of reach. Um, and that was not uh, something I expected. And, and I think that some, uh, even like projects I just mentioned, like in Greenville, South Carolina, are playing catch up now on affordable housing and um, community benefits agreements. And that is certainly where we're kind of starting, particularly with small scale projects that are right adjacent to residential areas and that are gonna affect property values and, and um, neighborhood identity. Um, we're trying to start and be really upfront and have those community members part of the planning process and sort of leading the effort and not hearing about it in a meeting and suddenly saying, what, <laughs> you're doing what? <laughs> um, so we've had, I've, I've just gotten an education really from community activists and, and leaders about, you know, just environmental racism, usually long histories, you know, hundreds of years uh, before where these creeks were treated as sewers, open air, you know, sewers, and, and they were there to carry the pollution away. And those who live downstream have lived with that for a long time. Um, so I think know your history, um, understand where neighborhoods are, are vulnerable to gentrification. Don't, don't be caught by surprise that, that the, the outcome of, of your urban restoration project is, is um, displacement. You know, we started this conversation talking about displacement because of the airport. So certainly something I'm sensitive to and I wanna be able to afford to live here as well. Yeah. Is there anything um, that we haven't talked about, about, you know, the effort or where it's headed or who's involved um, that you think is important for the understanding of it? And especially, you know, for sort of that wider audience. One thing I, I just have to say is that I did not consider myself um, like a river advocate when I came to this project. I, I'm an advocate for my community and seeing it restored and respected. And 
the river and the Flint, particularly the way that it touches all of these communities around the airport and really connects them all in this um, just ancient and invisible way has, it's become such a symbol of resilience to me, but it's also the tool that we're all trying to leverage just to um, bring back some respect to our, our neighborhoods. You know, if you can treat a river like a sewer, then that's a, that's pretty much an emblem of how the neighborhood's being treated, how the, the, the families that live there, how much we think of them. So trying to restore the Flint River, it's, it's you know, for me, it's, it's not so much about fishing in it. And, <laughs> and even though I love seeing all the critters and wildlife that are surviving in this urban context, it's, it's inspiring to me every time. Um, it is more about the people, obviously, that are going to benefit when we treat this river again, like, like it's worthy, like it's not disposable. So that's, that's kind of what keeps me going. And um, occasionally I get to go downstream and actually canoe and kayak and swim in a gorgeous um, rural setting. But meanwhile, I just, I just like being able to walk my dog along a pretty Creek and um, trust that it's safe and healthy. And it's going to be that way for the future generations. I think that's such an important lens. I'm so glad that you said that. I think, especially in, you know, the conservation and environmental movement has such a history of zooming in on, um, with blinders, you know, the resource, the, the natural resource. And I think that tie that you just made and starting in the community is, um, hugely important framing uh, for urban and non-urban settings. Yeah. And in, in the South is particularly a privilege to be able to get to water and to get to water that's safe enough to enjoy, to, you know, swim interfishing, which is ironic. We're surrounded by creeks. This is a water-rich state, um, but it's a real challenge to try to get yourself to some safe, clean water that you can go enjoy. So the privileged few that can do that are often, you know, not in, in the airport area communities where I'm at. Um, so trying to bridge that gap um, and, and make it more about like this, this river represents our community. And what we do to restore it, I mean, we will benefit directly, but it's also, it's changing the narrative about um, the South side. That was, yeah, I just learned a ton and I so appreciate your insights and your perspective. And um, is there anything that I didn't ask that you had hoped we would talk about or? I think so. <laughs> we covered a lot, Paige. Um, thank you for inviting me to, to talk about one of my favorite subjects, which is this, <laughs> like secret river <laughs> in a cage <laughs> in my backyard <laughs> that I grew up with and I'm just getting to know and love. <laughs> I enjoy it. Like Hannah mentioned, there are so many examples where finding the Flint could be replaced by finding the blank river in so many cities, though it probably wouldn't have quite the same ring to it. And as we learned in the conversation with Hannah, when a river sort of goes missing in the way that the Flint did, it's often an indicator of a much bigger justice issue, like displacement or pollution. I guess what I'm trying to say is that Hannah's journey and finding the Flint are about so much more than just a river. And in many ways, I felt like remind us that a river is never just a river. Instead, what's happening to the river 
is really often what's happening to a community. Thanks so much again for joining us today. And I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Hannah. I know I certainly did. A reminder that Hannah's book is called Flight Path, and I'll put a link in the show notes. As you probably know, this podcast is produced by Paige Bono and Faye Hartman. And we're two humans who wonder, are you out there? Are you listening? What do you think? What are your questions and your ideas? Send us a signal, rate and comment, share us with your friends. We'll be waiting. Till next time.